0: I then took him to my cave. Here I gave him bread and a draft of water, which he was in great distress for by his running. I made signs for him to go to sleep, pointing to a place where I had laid down a parcel of straw and a blanket upon it. So he lay down and went to sleep. He was a comely handsome fellow, perfectly well made, tall and, as I reckon, about 26 years of age. In a little while, I began to speak to him and teach him to speak to me. And first made him know his name should be Friday, which was the day I saved his life. I likewise taught him to say, Master, and then let him know that that was to be my name. Thank you, Larry. Tomorrow is America's Labor Day a day dedicated to the working men and women that have built and maintained our country. And it is also a nod to the labor organizations which they have built. Organized people. Organized by working people to give them the strength to share in the planning, the work, and the rewards of their labor. Let me quote an excerpt from the machinist union constitution typical of many unions. Believing the right of those who toil to enjoy to the full extent the wealth created by their labor is a natural right. Acting through generations, through organizations, along cooperative, economic, and political means, with a view of restoring the commonwealth to all those performing useful service to society, we pledge ourselves to labor unitedly. I must have first read Robinson Crusoe while in junior high or earlier. I remember it as not only a adventure story, but as an intriguing description of survival, of building, of personal development even. Caruso saves what he can from the shipwreck. He builds first a tent home and then a more permanent shelter, partly in a cave. He farms, domesticates the wild goats of the island, and settles in. He meets a companion later on, is eventually rescued, and makes it back home to England. On rereading Caruso much later, I found implications that totally escaped me at the first reading of the story. From our reading, I will call you Friday, you call me master. Caruso, as a matter of course, proceeds to point himself as master, and he names his companion Friday, and assigns him to be a servant or even slave. Now Friday, as a 20-some year old, must have had a name, Quinta Kunta Mandela. Hello, my name is Robinson, what is yours? Crusoe could have offered to split the island between them or offered to pay wages or asked Friday to work off improvements that he Caruso had made or they could have shared. Established the cooperative commonwealth, or God forbid, a communist commune. <laughs> I reread the story. But first, I read a b- short biography of the author, Daniel Defoe. Daniel Defoe lived from 1660 to 1731 in England. He was educated for the Presbyterian ministry, but he went into business instead. He became active in politics. He supported women's rights, welfare for the disabled. He spoke against racism, and he was arrested for criticizing the government-supported Church of England for supporting religious toleration. Sounds like one of our people. He wrote editorials, history, travel books, and fiction. He was 50 when he heard the story of Alexander Selkirk who was an English sailor who spent five years marooned on an island, Juan Fernandez Island off the coast of Chile. This gave him the idea for his now famous novel, Robinson Crusoe. He has written other works, but it is for Crusoe that he is best known. Thus forewarned, I reread The Adventures of Robinson Crusoe. It was both as I remembered it and different. For example, a theme that my memory had glossed over was Defoe's extensive exploration of solitary life and his use of the story to show Caruso's personal growth against adversity, his discarding of artificial values, and his acceptance of responsibility and morality. This as a struggle for survival, de- depending on self-reliance and fortitude. Now there's no denying self-reliance and fortitude. There is, however, more. Caruso, after the storm and the shipwreck, is washed up on the beach, alive, alone, with no more than his tattered clothes. How then does he go on to achieve relative prosperity? After shaking the water out of his eyes, he sees the hulk of the ship also on the beach, accessible. He rescues tools, firearms and powder, clothing, books, hardware, lumber, these treasures life-saving and life-enriching are actually gifts to Caruso from the ship's outfitters and deceased crew. That is what enabled him to survive. And he, Caruso, has had also passed on to him language, literacy, knowledge of calculation, awareness of tide and weather, these gifts, this education, and this heritage is what makes life possible for Caruso. So what Caruso is asked to share with Friday is not only the fruits of his, Caruso's work, but in addition to the materials from the shipwreck. Receive gifts from many sources, language, work skills, culture, and religion. When Caruso saves his new companion, whom he names Friday, from pirates, Friday speaks no English. Caruso establishes a social hierarchy in his first lesson plan. However, Early on, as the now-named Friday is taught the true religion, Defoe, through Caruso, does admit the possibility that Friday might already have a religion and a set of moral values. He, this is Defoe, conveniently posits a religion for Friday, which then he, through Caruso, discusses, and then persuades Friday that his Caruso's religion is the better one. In retrospect, this was written over 100 years before missionaries took the remaining Tasmanians into camp, imposed a rigid, intolerant religious indoctrination upon them, refusing to even so much as discuss or even acknowledge they might have beliefs or traditions of their own. The Tasmanians made a conscious choice not to bring children into such a world in which they could not teach their own values and beliefs and accepted extinction as a people in consequence. Given the state of cultural anthropology in the time of Daniel Defoe, the fictional Friday actually received quite a bit more consideration. Robinson Crusoe gained a whole new life experience and human enrichment when Friday came into his life. Just the company of another human being brightened his whole plane of existence. If the mores of default's time postulated of subservient status for Friday Through the story, Defoe points to the gains achieved through Friday and Crusoe's synergy, their combined work achieving much more than each working in isolation. This synergic gain is especially true in our modern interdependent industrial society, a fact often overlooked by some of our more ideologically driven neighbors. It is when people do work hard and they perceive their efforts as sole achievements as Caruso did and then are faced with the possibility of having to share those gains with someone new on the scene, someone who has not contributed to the original digging, plowing, building that apprehension, mistrust, and resentment appear. We Americans, dare I say, Christian-oriented to a large degree, do indeed have problems dealing with those others, those new on the scene, those Fridays. And we receive those Fridays every day. Whether they come on foot, step by step, over the wall or under it, or via modern air transport, they come to our island or into our castle. And we do assign a name and our status to them as we cope and adjust to their presence. After all, We Americans are mostly a nation of immigrants and relatively recent immigrants at that. We have mostly worked, built, improved our island. Now it seems we are required to share that which we have achieved with the newcomers. Escapees indeed, in many cases, from pirates. We are faced with the same choices as Caruso, how to deal with him. Let us consider another quite different aspect of this question, another true story. When I was about 11 or 12, we visited my grandparents. They lived on a small farm near Utica, New York. Two cows, chickens, a big garden. My grandfather shared a little grain growing acreage with a the neighbor. They got by, but they certainly saw little money. The mail came, and I ran to the box by the road to get it for my grandmother. She opened the official looking envelope and she showed me school tax bill. $100. Wow. This was big in my eyes in those days. That's for you and your sister, she said. For us, the grandkids, our education. When I returned from my Army service in 1952, the full tuition at the University of Washington was $25. In perspective, my wage at Boeing also at the same time was a dollar and a quarter an hour, $44 a week. Full tuition, about half a week's pay. If we assume a wage today of $15 an hour, which is still a goal in many cases, half a week's pay would be $300. Look it up. Fall quarter, 2018 tuition at the UW is $11,200. Land-grant colleges were established by the Abraham Lincoln administration to facilitate education for all as a charge from parents and grandparents to the coming generation. The logic being that equipped with the tools and expertise they would then return to the common store not only the amount invested in them, but an increase and enrichment to benefit all. And then they, in turn, would invest in their coming generations. Tax paying parents and grandparents have all these years, till just recently, kept that obligation, paying what it took to educate their own children. It's just recently that many people, voters, were somehow convinced to break that generational obligation and step back from funding the major part of higher education for their own and our own children, the coming generation. Prospective students are instead left on the beach, so to speak, and then are they directed, then they are directed to the student loan industry, which extracts in profits as much or more than what the schools receive. Pirates indeed. Students are to individually take on the financial burden with compound interest over a large part of their working lives. A far cry from Caruso's acceptance of, and sharing with, Friday. Two events, relatively recent, are factors in this shift from observing this generational obligation to afford higher education for all our young people. At the end of World War II, our nation, through act of Congress, Enacted the GI Bill of Rights to reward the veterans returning from the battlefields. Men and women, young and not so young, from every walk of life were given the impetus and support, especially financial support, to attend college or higher education in general. Many of these new students came from backgrounds where college had rarely been considered an option, but now, Their example made widespread across America an expectation of higher education for all. In this post-war period, state colleges and universities were faced with having to deal with a great influx of students, which was funded, however, thankfully, at first through the GI Bill, mainly by the federal government taxpayers. However, with the graduation of this first main cohort of veterans, the first open-ended federal support to colleges soon became a limited support, and state taxpayers were faced with meeting more and more of this a large increase in expectations and costs. In 1962, James Meredith enrolled at Mississippi University, at that time a nominal tuition. He met widespread and violent opposition. As a member of a minority population, regarded by many to be in subservience as our fictional Friday was, and not entitled to college, his admission and that of many minority students that followed him, across America including at our University of Washington also caused some people to question the free financial support of all students. To meet these developments a choice was made by state after state to gradually insidiously raise barriers, especially financial barriers for access to higher education rather than ask citizens to meet this increase in costs through higher taxes. And instead, expect students to individually shoulder long-term fiscal obligations. Let's go back to uh, Daniel Defoe, or rather Robinson Crusoe. This is a quote from the book. Another reflection was of great use to me and doubtless would be so to anyone that should fall into such distress as mine was. And this was to compare my present condition with what I first expected it should be, namely with what it certainly would have been if the good providence of God had not wonderfully ordered the ship to be cast up nearer to the shore, where I not only could come up to her but could bring what I got out of her to the shore for my relief and comfort, without which I had wanted for tools to use, weapons for defense, or gunpowder and shot for getting my food. If I had got nothing out of the ship, I would have perished. Caruso recognizes that although he had worked, built, plowed, and planted, ultimately his relative prosperity, his very life, was dependent on a legacy he had received from others, from those that came before him. He goes on to bring Friday into his castle, his home. He feeds and clothes Friday, shares with him, trusts him. As Caruso's saga continues, it is Caruso and Friday together that fight off pirates that capture a ship and return to Europe, where it is Friday that saves Caruso's life from an attack of wolves. We can join with those that come to us, many indeed that are fleeing pirates. They can enhance our lives. They, together with our coming generations, will make contributions, big and small, to our mutual benefit. And surely we join with those that would maintain the generational obligation that we and those of our generation receive in educational support from our parents and grandparents to pay, f- we can pay for the education of our own children and not deliver them in biblical terms to the moneylenders of the student loan industry. Our future is in the hands of those here that Bring in the light. Let's not fail them. So be it.